name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, listen, if you've got your Bibles, go to Esther chapter 8. We've been walking through the story of Esther. We're going to finish today, actually. I thought maybe I'd go one more week, but chapters 8, 9, and 10 go together. And I don't want us to miss that flow of those chapters together. So we'll be in 8, 9, and 10. As you're turning there, um, tell you one uh, announcement real quick, and that is, as, as in Todd will tell you at the end, we are looking at the um, different ways in which we're going to hopefully sooner than later phase back all of our, our ministry opportunities here, sort of the full scope of ministry. And so it's um, in the next, oh, seven or ten days, this is to parents, um, we're going to send out a questionnaire to you. We'd love to get some feedback from you. We've got some decisions to make as we look into July um, with elementary ministry and um, some of our other children's ministry options. And we're going to ask some questions of you and would love to get your feedback about a couple of things as we make those plans. So be looking for that, and if you get it, please send it um, on to us. And, um, and here's how you'll get it. If you are a newsletter getter, um, it'll come to you that way. If you have unsubscribed from our newsletter, you can repent of that today. Um, so just email uh, uh, something, In info, I think. Or just email Todd and tell him you're sorry, uh, you're ready to do penance and you want to be back on. Uh, but we do want your feedback. Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, we've been looking at Esther. Esther is what we said in the Old Testament is this book, in, it's unique in the Bible, unique in the Old Testament. It never mentions God. It is the story of God's people. It is the story of, of particularly two characters, Esther and Mordecai. They're Jews. They're living in Persia. They're in exile still, even though many years before the Jews that had been exiled to Babylon, they, many of them went back. Mordecai and Esther are part of the Jews that stayed, and now they're living in the Persian Empire. A king is, um, uh, the king of Persia is um, Ahasuerus. He's also known in history as Xerxes. He's presented at the beginning of the book as, you know, the king of the world. He's the, he's the emperor of all emperors. He, is, he has power over everything, it appears, even down to the intimate details of how relationships work in homes. The, the author says this is how Xerxes thinks of himself. He is all-powerful over everything. And yet, what happens is you discover chapter by chapter that power is just an illusion. And while God is never mentioned, he is hardly unnoticed. Every event, every seeming coincidence, every turn, every um, impossible thing to come together at just the right time, the author is letting us know in the most subtle and brilliant way that God is just off stage. He is invisible. He isn't abandoned. He is there directing all of those steps, caring for his people. Well, we got to the end of chapter 7 last week, and it looked like everything was going to be resolved. It looked like the credits might roll on the movie. So, 
um, Mordecai was in danger from uh, Haman. Mordecai's the good guy. Haman's the bad guy. Haman not only wanted to get rid of Mordecai, he wanted to get rid of all the Jews. You've got Esther, who was an orphan, who now is the queen of Persia, and everything seems to be righted in their individual lives, and, um, and, and everything's going, but, but, but the credits don't roll, because while Esther and Mordecai are safe, and their fortune or their future seems secure, there is still the matter of this edict that Haman had decreed against the Jews. And that is that all the Jews in this 127 provinces, there was going to be a, a day, a purge. And everyone that wanted to could take up arms against all the men and the women and the children who were Jewish. Well, so this is where we are. We get to chapter 8. What happens is 8 opens up, and I'll sort of summarize it for you. We'll look at the last few verses. But how it happens is this day, um, Ahasuerus is there. He gives Esther all of Haman's stuff. Esther makes Mordecai the head of her household. The king takes the signet ring off of Haman's hand because he's dead, and he gives it to Mordecai. Mordecai now is, is operating as the number two under the emperor. Well, from there, Esther comes into the presence of the king. She risks her life again. She comes into the presence of the king, and she begins to plead with tears for the fate of her people. You, you think this is going to get answered, but then look at verse um, 7 of chapter 8. It says this. Well, back up to verse 6. Sorry. Verse 6, for how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? She's saying this to the king. Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus, in verse 7, he said to, the queen, to queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. You get the sense more to Ahasuerus uh, is saying, Listen, I've had a pretty full day here. Verse 8, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Essentially, what the king's going to tell Esther and, and, and Mordecai is he's going to say to him, he's going to say, listen, I, the, the decree's been issued. I know it was by Haman's hand. I know Haman signed my name. He, he used my signet. But if, a, if the decree has gone out, the decree's gone out. I can't overturn the decree. And here again we are seeing that the power of this all-powerful emperor is really just an illusion. That Haman, who is a dead traitor in his death, is more powerful than this king. So what he says to them is that they're able to write a counter decree. You send your own edict. You send your own decree. I can't undo the one I've done. I can't cancel the one I've done. But you can write another. And then what you have in verses 9 through 15 is you have Mordecai crafting an edict, a counter edict. Now, it is no exercise in creative writing, okay? What Mordecai does is he takes Haman's decree on one side, and a blank piece of paper on the other. And he begins, you know, measure by measure, 
issuing this decree to the Jews. He's copying the language. He wants it to be not something over and above. What he's trying to do is balance the scale. He's trying to bring a balance to the injustice that was put out there by Haman. He goes on, uh, just to give you a flavor of it, um, in verse 11. Saying that the king, this is what he's writing, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and to annihilate. This is matching Haman's language. Any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, or attack their children, or attack the women that's included, and plunder and to plunder their goods. And so what he's saying is, listen, this isn't an, this isn't an offensive decree. This is a defensive decree to the Jews. If on this day of the purge, which is nine months from now, if, if people come against you, you can defend yourself, and you can defend yourself vigorously. And he matches it um, stroke for stroke. A couple of things I'd say about this. There are a lot of reversals in this story. In fact, the whole story, 8, 9, 10, this is all about this great reversal, this injustice to justice, this um, um, wrong to, to right. And, and some of them, just listen to them, Haman sought to plunder the Jews. Now it's a Jew who's given possession of all of his things. The, the signet ring moves from Haman's hand to Mordecai's hand, from the hand of the one whom Haman declared, it's not uh, to the king's prophet to tolerate them. It goes on to the hand now of Mordecai the Jew, the one who greatly profited the king. Look at the end of verse 15. It says this, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in the royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Mordecai is gone from the sackcloth that he was wearing in his grief to now being clothed in such royalty that none compares in the kingdom besides the king himself. The city of Susa at the first decree, at Haman's decree, you find out at the end of chapter 3 that it throws the city into great confusion. Now what you see is that it grows, uh, throws the city into this joyfulness, this gladness. Notice verse 16, and the Jews had light, um, had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city... Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The chapter begins with Esther in tears. It ends with the Jews rejoicing and feasting. And I want you to see there's this last bit in verse 17 where it says that um, many of the peoples from the country 
declared themselves Jews. Part of what I think this means is I think this means some people began to identify with Jews. They began to notice them. They began to say, hey, we're interested in what you're doing. I don't know that this is a formal conversion to Judaism that it's speaking of. I mean, in a book where there's no mention of God and no mention of religious ceremony and no mention of prayer or miracles or the revelation of God, it doesn't seem fitting necessarily that this is this good news that went out is, is resulting in um, converts to Judaism. I don't know that that's exactly what that means. I think it means something more like this. I think people were looking around at the injustice. Now they're seeing this righted or the potential of it being righted. And I think you have people coming alongside Jews and saying, you know what? I'm a Jew also. I stand with the Jews here. I don't stand with Haman. I stand with those that have been served up this injustice. I stand with them. I stand for them. I think that's what that means. There's an old story about when Ronald Reagan um, was shot, the attempted assassination on Reagan's life, and he was just about to go into surgery, and he looked up at the medical team and famously he said in, in a quip, he said, I, I sure hope all of you are Republicans. To which the surgeon, the doctor that was there, looked at him and said, Mr. President, today we're all Republicans. It's a solidarity. It's, it's what they're saying. Today, today, we're Jews. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. We started this series um, before uh, there was any riots in the United States, any protests, rather. I can tell you I would not have been probably bold enough to say, hey, we're going to preach Esther in response to that. But I can tell you that right here in the middle of the Old Testament, in a in the mastery and beauty of all its literary elegance, God has inspired, revealed, and preserved his word and what he says about these people, what he celebrates about the people in the nation is that those that looked upon those who were being served in justice came along in solidarity and said, you know what, I'm with them. I'm going to stand with them. This second decree, that wasn't their first choice. The first choice was they wanted the king to just overturn it. That that 13th day of Adar that was nine months away, that he'd just wipe that out. That that purge that was scheduled just wouldn't happen, but Ahasuerus wouldn't do it. And so now they were left with option two. Well, I want you to see what happens when that day comes. Look here in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, nine months have passed, and it says this, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, 
the reverse occurred. And the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 are about this great reversal that is going to take place. This righting of a wrong, this justice in the midst of injustice. Follow along with me, verse 2, it says, And the Jews, they gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. And the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. In every way, the author is doing everything he can to not say, and it's because of God. He wants you to draw that conclusion. For Mordecai, verse 4, was great in the king's house, and his fame spread through all the provinces. And then Mordecai grew and more, uh, more and more powerful, and the Jews struck all the enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did as they pleased to those who hated them. And in Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Verse 7 gives names, and then verse 10, verse 7 and 8 and 9 give names. Verse 10 tells you these are the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamath, the, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So, two things about this. One, you read this, and it, in our sensibilities today, it doesn't sound like very good news. It sounds like, gosh, this is everything I thought the Old Testament was. It's bloodshed and gore and, you know, all this stuff. But I, I, that would, to bring our sensibilities to it would be to miss what the author's intent. He's announcing this as good news. What beforehand was going to be sure enough a slaughter of God's people has now become this victory, this hope that they um, rose to, this, this um, uh, injustice that's been made right. Tolkien in Lord of the Rings puts these words into Frodo's mouth. Frodo, you know, he's been burdened with the ring. He has to take the ring. He's got to go throw the ring in the, uh, you know, the hot lava there at the end. And at some one point in the book, Frodo looks to Gandalf. There's this little hobbit carrying this great burden. And he says, I wished it need not have happened in my time. Wish this hadn't happened in my time. To which Gandalf replies, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what we do with the time that's given us. Second thing to notice is three times it'll say that they did not take any of the spoil. This is significant, I think, if you went back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Saul is the king of, of Israel, the king of the United Tribes. He goes to war against the Amalekites. The Amalekites are led by a man named King Agag. This story tells the story of Haman, the Agagite, and Mordecai, the direct descendant of Saul. What put Saul 
at the wrong end of God's favor was that God said, when you go to destroy the Amalekites, destroy them, devote everything to destruction, don't leave anything. These are bad people. They've been bad people since back in Moses' day. Saul doesn't listen to God. Instead, what he does is he takes the stuff, he plunders them, he takes the spoils, and he leaves the king alive. Well, Samuel will come and take care of the king and write all of that. But, but I want you to see, here these Jews are not going to make the same mistake. They're going against these Agagites, and no plunder will be taken. You know, we can't control the circumstances that are passed down to us. We can't control what we've inherited from previous generations. All we can do is control what we do with it. All we can control is what we're going to do with those circumstances. See, sometimes what happens is a generation will leave a mess for those that come behind them to clean up. Make, you can make sure we're leaving our own messes, all right? Saul's refusal to kill Agag. Saul's refusal to ban all the plundering. It is possible these ramifications have found themselves down into Esther's generation. If Haman truly is linked to Agag, which the text seems to say so, then here what's happening is that God's people are going to finally do what the previous generations had failed to do. Those that hated the Jews like the Agagites did this generation was going to eliminate the spirit of Agag, who are the enemies of God's people. In either way, the Jews in Persia were given an opportunity to stand and to fight for their preservation. They were not going to pass the problem down to anybody else. Mordecai's decree to the Jews was in perfect harmony with the Old Testament. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Isaac also hears um, from um, God. He tells to Jacob what God has said, and he would agree with Mordecai. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. God tells Moses in Exodus 23, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. About 50 years ago, a guy named J. Vernon McGee made this great observation. He said, the Jew has attended the funeral of every one of the nations that tried to exterminate him. It's not to say that in any way that given today in our situation and our circumstances that violence in the name of righting injustice 
is right. And yet it would be a shame for us to not call injustice injustice. You know, a lot of people have said, you know, well, so what side should we be on? You know, mostly I think when people are asking the question, you're thinking the question, you're like, well, so who, who am I listening to? Is it, is it these people or is it these people? Is it the right or is it the left? Who's, who's right in this thing? And I would tell you, here's the answer that accords with God's Word that is always safe every time. You know who we stand with? We stand with the poor and the needy. We stand with the widow and the fatherless. We stand with those who have been served in justice. As believers, I'm not so sure we're called to choose right and left. We're called to choose those whom God... God reveals His heart for those... He calls us to align with those. To stand up and to say, you know what, I'm poor too then. I'm needy too then. I stand with you. That's the side that we're to be on. I was going to tell you about Purim, which is what gets celebrated, the victory is going to get celebrated. It ultimately culminates in, a, in this um, festival called Purim. I'm, I'm not going to go into it except to say if you ever have a chance, you're ever invited to go to a Purim at a synagogue, you ought to go. It is, would be quite a treat. Here's what you are to know. If you're sitting there in the congregation, the book of Esther will be read. Every time Haman's name is spoken aloud, you sitting there in the synagogue are to cry as loud as you can, may he be accursed. That's one side. The other side then would say, may his name perish. In fact, they, the kids in... in uh, preparation for Purim, they make these little noise boxes, and every time Haman's name's read, they shake the noise box. Doesn't that sound like fun? <laughs> be like if, never mind, probably a Pittsburgh Steelers fan in here, I won't do that. All right, so, here's what's interesting, let me say this, when you, when you read this this um, instruction that Mordecai is going to send out to all the Jews. This is how you're going to celebrate Purim. And they're celebrating it in, in commemoration that they're, they're, um, uh, they're ordaining a feast in commemoration of this great victory. In fact, what you see is you see the Passover is the is the feast, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the festival, it's, it's the occasion, it's the remembrance of God's Passover and taking the um, Israelites out of Egypt. And, and, and God will prescribe these 
feasts and these festivals as remembrances. What is interesting here is that none of the instructions that are given about Purim ever obviously identify God as the one whom praise should be given to for this victory. It's, it's not that the author's trying to say Purim is bad. In fact, the author's trying to say Purim is good. This is what people do. This is, this is how we celebrate um, the, the victories, what God has done in line of this. And, and it, it, it seems, though, as they could have obeyed Mordecai and Esther's edict to the letter and gone through the whole day without thinking about God even once. One writer says they could simply give their neighbor an Esther as the reason for the season t-shirt and settle down on the couch for a big meal. I think the point is this. How could anyone possibly remember the turning around of darkness into light and the receiving of rest from one's enemies without thinking about God? How could anyone possibly celebrate Purim without seeing what God has done? Well, I'll tell you how. Just wait a few months until it becomes December. The whole world will sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Without ever realizing in the midst of all the busyness and all the chaos why we are even singing about such joy and to whom we owe that joy to. Well, I told you that all of this is about reversals, about a relief. But I want you to see something that I think is very important and I hope will be instructive for us today. This relief is not final. This relief is not ultimate. It is a relief, it is a, a, a reversal that points to a greater reversal, to a greater relief. Just look at the, the, the verses in chapter 10. There's only three of them. I'll read them. I want to say one or two words about it and then we'll close. But it says, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and his might and the full amount of his high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of the Media, uh, Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and he spoke peace to all of his people. You see, I think what the author is giving us a window into is that the Jews, they've received relief. They've received rest from their enemies all around them except for one enemy, and that enemy is Ahasuerus. He's callously indifferent, isn't he? I mean, he's the reason they were in the, in the situation they were in in the first place. His, his uh, refusal to overturn that required a second edict that led to nothing but bloodshed. No one really celebrates bloodshed. And now at the end of all of it, while he has loved his queen, he has decided he's going to impose a tax upon all his people, undoing everything he did when Esther became queen. 
He's not raising those taxes so that he can put in community centers and benefit the people of his kingdom. They're for his own interests and his own wealth. And it's surely good news that, has, uh, that Mordecai is the number two man under the king. It was a place where he was able to seek good and speak good for his people, a position that was once filled by somebody who hated the Jews. Now it is filled by a Jew who is their friend. But this is good news. It is not the best news. See, they're going to truly have rest from their enemies when the king's no longer a Ahasuerus. They truly will have rest when the king of Psalm 72 shows up where it says he's the king who embodies the virtues of justice and righteousness, who defends the cause of the poor of the people, gives deliverance to the children of the needy. He crushes the oppressor. He's a king who has dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. He's a king who delivers the needy when they call and the poor and delivers those who have no helper. A king whose name endures forever and ever and his fame is as long as the sun and it ends this way. Blessed be the God, uh, the Lord, the God of Israel who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever and may, his, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. There's a deliverance for sure in Esther, but it is not the final deliverance. It points only forward to a greater deliverance. The deliverance is not going to rest on some man who's ranked number two, but one man who has no rival, who is the Son of God, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And while the kingdom of Ahasuerus has passed away, the evil empire still remains, doesn't it, in all its different forms. We're always going to live in this struggle between good and evil here. But it was Mary, the mother of Jesus, who I think caught the glimpse of the great reversal to come. In Luke 1, she says, he's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those in humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the wrench he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to all his offspring. But I'm not sure Mary in those moments could have imagined what that reversal was going to cost. That the God of all time was going to step out of time enter time, be born into a manger that the Holy One would be made sin. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So that we that are sinners might become right, the righteousness of God. The one who is life was going to die on a cross, be laid in a tomb so that we who are dead in our sins could be given life eternal. The tomb couldn't hold him, and the great twist is this, the great reversal. The crucified, hell-enduring Christ would burst forth from death, defeat the enemy, 
and be exalted as the Savior in heaven. That's the great reversal. Listen, peace in this world does not rest on circumstances. Or peace in this world does rest on circumstances. You got to have something go your way or somebody advocate for your way. You need a Mordecai. Somebody just under the king who advocates for your position. But Mordecai's going to die. We have a peace that rests on Jesus standing in the heavenly throne room before the Father. He speaks peace. He seeks our good. He claims us as his own. He bought us with his blood. And the day's coming when he's going to return and claim his throne. And the evil empire will be done. The day is going to come when the angels will cry out, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. And you'll reign forever and ever. And on that day, the elders in heaven along with us will bow, will throw ourselves on the ground, worthy as God the Father and the Lamb that was slain. By whose blood we have been redeemed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation to which all of creation will simply say, Amen. See, we have the opportunity to begin that Amen even now. I don't know about you. As I look around in the world, it is easy to forget that this moment in time is not all that there is. That in the moments of injustice, we side with those who have been wronged realizing not everything can be fixed now, but it all points forward. It's a foreshadowing. It's a pointing towards the day where there will be the great reversal, the final reversal. And might our hearts be kindled afresh with that hope. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray you would do what only you can do. pray you would take your word that you revealed, you inspired, you preserved. Father, that, that word by your Spirit would work in our hearts to soften our hearts and to tune our ears and to give clarity to our eyes. That, Father, that, that your word, that, that we, would, we would filter a moment like this in time and space through your word that is eternal. And Father, would we find ourselves conforming to what you have said, conforming to who you are. Father, conforming to what is finally to come. Change us, transform us into the likeness of your beautiful and glorious and powerful Son. And Father, I pray that you would draw those that have never trusted you, that have never bowed before you, that have never humbly cried out to you, save me. Would you grant them 
the clarity to see Jesus and by faith believe to trust Him. Father, we pray the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.